Most of us are aware that down south of the border there's an intense competition going on between two candidates for the nomination to the, of the Democratic Party for the U.S. presidential elections in November. There's international interest in this election as far away as places as in Kenya for obvious reasons because one of the candidates, Barack Obama, has part of his heritage way back there. I don't normally get interested in any political elections, especially south of the border, and especially this early in the race. I've been watching and listening and doing a lot of thinking and arguing and conversing, and it's been quite enjoyable. <laughs> but it made me think about elections and international interest, and my mind went back to a, a, another kind of election, very different in nature, a few years ago, that was much, much more extensive in terms of the worldwide interest it generated. That was when the much-loved Pope John Paul XXIII died. Uh, who was going to be his successor? Would it be an Italian? Was it time for someone from the third world? And, and there was obviously millions and billions of people that were interested in that. For an obvious reason that for many, many of them, uh, the Pope represented a very significant link in their relationship with God. But even for those very same people, he was very far away, not accessible. Most of them would never see him, let alone talk to him. So at a personal level, local parish priests and pastors become much more important when it comes to this issue of a relationship with God. Nurturing it, finding it, sustaining it. It's very interesting, I discovered a few years ago that the Latin word for priest was pontifex, which it actually means a bridge, Bridges play a very significant role in our lives, both in peacetime and in wartime. Last year in the month of August in the city of Minneapolis, one of the major bridges on I-35 leading into the city was just broke and caused all kinds of chaos for several weeks for people who were living there. Months, I think. And in wartime, bridges become even more important. The enemy always attempts to take out the bridges going into the city first because bridges are a life supply line for troops, for food. And when broke, bridges are broken... The city is isolated, it is starved, it is vulnerable. Intact bridges, on the other hand, provide exactly the opposite kind of feeling. And so it's a very appropriate metaphor for pastors and priests. Even those people who are not in the habit of regularly attending places of worship, at certain crucial times in their lives find priests and pastors important. Perhaps at the birth of a child, at a baptism or a dedication, at marriage, and almost certainly at the time of death when eternal issues tend to come a little bit more to the front. And so the election of successors when it comes to pastors and priests becomes an important thing. All the more when the person leaving or who died or whatever has been a beloved long-standing patriarch of some sort. I remember when I was studying at MIT in 1967, almost 40 years ago, uh, I attended a church called Park Street Church and the pastor there was leaving after 31 years. And I remember his final address. And there was much gasping and, and, and weeping of, uh, uh, on the, in the lobbies outside. Questions like, who? Who will be his successor? Who will fill their shoes? Who will continue to be my bridge to God at those critical moments in my life? Those are questions that come naturally. Now in some denominations, the successor is appointed. In others, he or she is elected by local congregations. But either way, Transitions in the pastorate and the priesthood are important because people are affected either for positively or negatively. And so we all understand the importance of pastors, priests, and successions. This Easter, I want to talk to you about the single most important transition in priesthood 
that has ever taken place in the history of the world with absolutely massive implications for every human being, those of you included here. This was not done by any election, but by divine appointment with huge implications for life and for eternity. And before I take you to the particular portion of the New Testament in which I want to anchor my thoughts this morning, for those of you who may not be particularly familiar with the story of the Bible, I want to give you a little bit of background. For the rest of you, it's a bit of a refresher. The, the, the basic storyline of the Bible begins uh, with the life of a man named Abraham, lived in modern-day Mesopotamia, modern-day Babylon. And God called this man and promised to multiply his progeny and give him as an inheritance that parcel of land that we today know largely as Israel, Palestine in those days. That promise was repeated to his son Isaac, which was repeated to his son Je Jacob, who then became the, the father of 12 sons, who became the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Two in particular are important to us today, Levi and Joseph. Through his son Joseph's wisdom, the land of Egypt was delivered by, from, from a tremendous famine. And so Joseph rose to high prominence in Egypt and Jacob, his father, with his family of about 70 at that time, moved to Egypt and were the object of Pharaoh's favor and grace. They multiplied tremendously and over the succeeding decades, another Pharaoh came into power who did not know Joseph or his contribution to Egypt. He got scared at the huge multiplication of these Hebrew people and so he decided to enslave them lest they betray him in times of warfare. And for 400 years, these people, known as the people of Abraham, Israel suffered tremendously. And then God raised up a man named Moses. Most, far more of you are aware of that. Even if you don't know the Bible well, you probably saw the Ten Commandments. Moses and his brother Aaron were both descended from this man Levi. They were Levites in that sense. And God used them to deliver the people of Israel and brought them out into the wilderness at Mount Sinai. They were given the Ten Commandments, the law by which they were expected to live and honor God. And then he also gave them instructions for their worship life. They built a not a concrete block like this, but a tabernacle, a tent, a movable tent. And in order to manage the worship life of Israel, there was a whole group of people known as priests. They were all directly descended from the line of Aaron, who came from Levi. So they were known as Levi and the priests. Now, one particular priest was called the high priest, and he had an absolutely supreme honor and function to perform that nobody else could perform in the history of Israel. You need to understand a little bit about how this tabernacle was divided. It had many compartments to it, but right at one side was a perfectly cubical structure known as the Holy of Holies. It represented the most concrete, um, manifest presence of God in all of his glory. As such, it was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by very heavy curtains. And that curtain symbolized the fact that God was so holy that if sinful human beings just walked into his presence, they would die. Anybody, priests, ordinary people, no one could do it. But on one particular day of the year, known as Yom Kippur, which our Jewish friends celebrate even today, known as the Day of Atonement, one very solemn ceremony was enacted. All of Israel gathered around this temple. And two goats were brought. And one goat was selected by Lot and killed. And the blood of that goat was drained into a basin. And the high priest, only him, who only came by direct succession from Abraham, from Aaron, would go into this Holy of Holies. The curtain would be separated for just a few moments. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle this blood in the place that represented the manifest presence of God. And then he would come out very quickly. 
And then he would lay his hands upon the other goat. And that other goat, a live goat, was sent out into the wilderness where it presumably got killed by wild animals. That goat was called the scapegoat. We have that word in our English language today. Somebody who's made to take the blame for someone else. And on that, that was a symbolic transferring of all of the sins of Israel for that year onto the scapegoat. And for Israel, it represented a new beginning. Even today, our Jewish friends think of Yom Kippur as a day of new beginnings and of fresh starts. What this enactment every year and the sacrificial system in between for every other transgression that the people ever committed, all mediated by the priests, What this communicated to the people of Israel more than anything else was that their God was infinitely holy, that human sin made it impossible for human beings to spontaneously and arbitrarily come into the intimate presence of God anytime they wanted. That holy of holies separated by the curtain symbolized that for them. They needed an elaborate system of priesthood to act as intermediaries to to make sure that all of their regulations and offerings were properly followed. But there was no thought or no question of any intimacy, personal relationship with this God. Their main preoccupation was not to offend this infinite majesty, to make sure that they followed the rules that were prescribed, followed the various liturgical seasons of their lives. But a heart change at the very core of their being, that wasn't something on the forefront of their thinking at all. Into this situation came one Israelite, Jesus. He did not come from the tribe of Levi. He came instead from the tribe of Judah. God took upon himself, not in just an external manifestation, but in a real incarnation, perfect humanity. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And on the day that we call Good Friday, he died. He was crucified on the cross. He was that one perfect sacrifice that was anticipated in the entire Jewish sacrificial system. And on the day that we celebrate today, Easter Sunday, he rose again from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind. As a divine demonstration to us that his sacrifice on the cross was truly acceptable to satisfy the demands of a holy God. And then we are told that 40 days later he ascended into heaven. Where today... He lives to serve as our high priest, as that song just uh, encapsulated for us. Remember the day of atonement? In Jesus, that one day, that one holy day in Israel that was enacted, came to its convergence and to its fulfillment. It was a threefold coalescing into Jesus of everything that happened that day. First of all, he he was the lamb that was slain. His sacrifice on the cross was his blood that appeased the anger and the wrath of a holy God. In his being cast out outside the camp, which is where the crucifixion took place, he was also the scapegoat that went outside the camp and bore the sins of the people of God. And then on the third day when he rose again and went to the presence of God, he was also the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies. He was both lambs and and high priest all coalesced into one. And today as our high priest, he accomplishes for you and me what the entire Old Testament sacrificial system could never accomplish, for even, even though it was instituted by God himself. Jesus lives today as our high priest to do, and for you and me to be a bridge to God, not just for those critical times in our life, but all of the time, inside and outside church, all of our lives, in the workplace and in the home, and to do for us what a religion of rules and regulations 
even the one prescribed by God himself could never have done. And it is captured for us in one particular book of the Bible, a letter that was written to a group of Christians that we simply know as the Hebrews. And there is one passage that I want to focus on this morning as I want to outline for you what this ministry of this high priest does for you and for me today. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. There are three things about the high priesthood of Jesus that are unique and that have their significance for us. Here they are. First of all, he ministers in the power of an indestructible life. Secondly, he gives us the assurance of an everlasting priesthood. And thirdly, he gives us the gift of an unceasing intercession. Let me just amplify in each one of those. First of all, the power of an indestructible life. The same passage we read a few moments ago tells us that the old system was set aside because it was weak, useless. Why? Because it was not able to accomplish any real transformation. This entire elaborate sacrificial system was one constant reminder of the total failure of the system to truly bring about internal change. In every sin that was offered was the realization that we are still unable to overcome that in our lives. At best, they could hope for external conformity, but any irreversible, progressive, internal transformation that actually births a love for the law of God and a love for God so that we would desire to do what we ought to do as opposed to merely following an externally imposed system, it could never do. But Jesus changed that all. Because he perfectly God and perfectly man, but as man lived in perfect dependence upon God. He now lives as our high priest to communicate that quality of life to you and to me. It's interesting in the Hebrew Greek language there are two different words used which we both translate life. Bios and zoe. Bios is the word from which we get biology. It refers to that biological dimension of our lives that enables us to lift our hands, sit down, eat a meal, walk, drive, all of those things. But in our natural condition, the Bible tells us we do not have Zoe. Zoe, the other life, is the essential life. And in the New Testament, Zoe is held up over Bios. It is that, if you will, that Godward life, the essential life, life to its fullest, that which Jesus had. And even in our religious life, we can only do the Bios part of it. We can show up in church. We can give an offering. We can partake of Holy Communion. We can lift our hands. We can play music. We can sing songs. But it is possible to do all of those things without any Zoe, without any essential life of God Himself in us. But Jesus, because He is our High Priest, who ministers in the power of an indestructible Zoe, as we meet God in our worship through Him, He is able to mediate to you and to me that quality of life that he had so that we are then able to live the way he did. Loving to obey God and his commandments. 
the weakest analogy I can come up with, and any of you who are experts in the field of genetics, please excuse my inaccuracies and my in the lack of preciseness and detail, but I think the general idea holds. I read every now and then of, of, of this marvel called genetic engineering. I mean, it has led to all kinds of debates about stem cell research and stuff like that. But, but, the, but the potential that there is to take appropriate elements of our basic building blocks, the genes and the chromosomes and clip here and there, and then they insert these things into other things that are dead and they begin to reproduce and begin to come alive. So there is hope that they might reverse uh, Alzheimer's disease, for example. Uh, they might be able to bring back reverse spinal cord damage and whatnot. I mean, to the extent that they are successful, this is marvelous. And it actually gives me the best analogy that I've been able to find of what goes on when Christ communicates his life to us. It is, if you, as if you will, the elements of the genetic makeup of his Zoe, indestructible life, are slowly being implanted into our destructive, destructible biological life. And a whole new kind of life begins to well up within us. And our worship actually begins to change us on the inside. That's the first ministry of Jesus, our high priest. And then secondly, he, it is an everlasting priesthood, which is a very comfortable thing. Human priests are mortal. <laughs> they pass on. Some pass on before their death because they have been discovered to be imperfect. They have fallen in some way. Some have fallen morally. Some have fallen because they have embezzled church funds. Others have fallen because they, by the, by the virtue of their lack of character and relational issues, they have caused all kinds of damage in the places. Others don't pass on by exercising their own powers. They remain in control, but people wish they would pass on. And even the good ones eventually die. Our only hope is that a successor might turn out better or as good. But with Jesus, there's no such problem. There are no more successors needed because he ministers as a permanent priesthood because his life is indestructible. No worry about superdelegates needing to be convinced to change their votes for the next one. No sudden disqualification because of a skeleton in the closet that appears out of nowhere. This priest is perfect. This priest lives forever. There is no more need of any successor. You never have to worry about a change in this priesthood. This communication of this indestructible life will continue. And then thirdly, we have the blessing of an everlasting intercession. We have somebody who prays for us all the time. On the cross, he cried out, even as those Roman soldiers were driving the nails through his hands and his feet, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He was already praying for the sinners. You know, think of it. Jesus lived 30 years in obscurity. Except for one brief appearance when he was 12 years old in public life. He did his spectacular work of teaching and healing for three years. He finished the amazing work of crucifixion and redemption in three days. From Friday to Sunday. He did the work of instruction of his disciples for 40 days after that. But for 2,000 years he has been praying. That is his priority. We have an unceasing intercessor. We have one priest who is indestructible in his life, everlasting in his, in his capacity as priest, and who loves to and unceasingly prays for every single one of us. No human priest can do any of those things for us. In our time of sin, sinfulness, he cries out for our forgiveness. 
In our time of weakness, he prays for strength. In our time of perplexity, he prays for our wisdom. And in our time of powerlessness to keep the law, he asks the Father for the Holy Spirit. And the very Spirit of Christ is poured out into our lives. And and is the medium by which that life is communicated to us. And because of this spectacular priest, who ministers by the power of an indestructible life, who is everlasting in his priesthood, needing no successor, and whose delight is to continually pray for you and for me, we have both an amazing privilege and a responsibility. Let me just focus on that for a minute. In that section that we read for us in the middle, it says, but now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Look at the phrase, through which we draw near to God. Remember what I told you was the dominant feature of the Old Testament worship? They couldn't approach God. Only one person, a high priest, only on one day, the day of atonement, only with the blood of that goat, and only for a few brief moments, could dare to even go to that place, and he would do so in fear and in trembling. There were bells that were stitched on the bottom of this high priest's garment, so that people on the outside could at least hear the bells tinkling, and know that the guy hadn't been struck dead. Can you imagine the contrast between that and you and I being told that because of Jesus, every single one of us can come right into the Holy of Holies? When Jesus rose from the dead, we are told, when he finally cried out, Father, it is finished, into my hands I commit my spirit. The gospel writers tell us that the veil of the temple was torn in two. That heavy curtain that separated that internal Holy of Holies from the rest of humanity was ripped apart, showing that the way into the immediate presence of God was wide open for every single person. We take it so casually to a first century Jew who had been trained in Jewish worship, that was an unthinkable privilege. You know, we don't need any human priests anymore to intercede between us and God. We don't need the prayers of any saints to get us merit before God. Jesus is the all-sufficient merit for every single one of us to independently be able to have access to God wherever we are. Human priests do. I'm here teaching. Priests have a function. Pastors have a function for teaching, guiding. But their goal is to guide each individual to get to the point where they know how to go to God themselves. And that is an amazing privilege. And it is a guarantee for us. He says, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant. We live in a world where all kinds of people give us guarantees and we don't really believe any of them, right? When the salesman gives us a guarantee, we say, well, of course, he's trying to sell the product. If they give us the guarantee, we look for the fine print. Or at least we are advised to look for the fine print. So we don't believe the main words in the guarantee. If we read the fine print, then we say, well, we don't understand this at all. Some lawyer will get them off if we ever get into trouble with them. What use is the guarantee if the ownership changes? What happens if the business goes down the tube, which is quite possible? And all of us have unfortunately had experiences where we have dealt with uh, companies that have sold us products and we go back to them still under the warranty and they fiddle around with it, never really fix it until the warranty goes off and then we have a huge big bill to pay. We all know that. Guarantees are useless in the society that we live in because they're only as good as the person who's making them, which is the whole point. 
This guarantee is as good as Jesus. He is the guarantee that the way into the most holy place has been opened for you and for me. So for those of you who are followers of Christ, the message of Easter is to hold before us this incredible privilege, to paint before us this picture of this amazing high priest that we have for us. And then we are asked, will you draw near? Will we neglect this awesome privilege? Or will we say, I want Zoe. I'm not satisfied with Bios. I want the, this genetic material of Christ himself to be communicated. I want to have those elements of indestructible life worked into me. I want my worship to truly transform me on the inside. So I love to do what I ought to do. So I love this God. And I love the fact that he's holy. And I rejoice in the fact that this priest will never ever be replaced. And oh how I depend on and long for the prayers of this priest on my behalf. And I will go out and live each day no matter what kind of life I'm living in. Because I wake up every morning knowing that Jesus is praying for me. That's our privilege. Will we take it? Will we get better at it? Or will we neglect it? Is the question for us. And for those of you who do not yet know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, who have not yet reached that point, it all begins over there. You have to come to the point when you say that old covenant, which depends upon all the performance of the religious rules and regulations, all of the various sacrifices. Today we don't make blood sacrifices, but we've substituted other things in its place. That they're all useless. They are not able to change our hearts. And so we will abandon our trust in religious systems. And by the way, it's possible to be consider yourself a Christian and do no more than just that. And you enter the most holy place with Jesus, trusting in His sacrifice. As the only but totally sufficient basis on which your sins are forgiven. That's where the journey begins. And then you get in on this priesthood. <laughs> then you become the beneficiary of having a high priest like this. Then you learn the wonderful privilege and the joys of personal direct access into the presence of a holy God. <clears throat> I need to say something. Yesterday morning in the Globe and Mail I read an article taking Christ out of Christianity. An avant-garde pastor teaches a new Christianity. And the opening paragraph reads this. That triumphal Easter hymn, Jesus Christ has risen today, hallelujah, this morning will rock the walls of Toronto's West Hill United Church. But at West Hill, it will be done with a huge difference. The words Jesus Christ will be excised from what the congregation sings and will be replaced with glorious hope. So only hope is resurrected. Thus it is hope that will be declared to be resurrected. An expression of renewal and optimism in the human spirit. That's a total focus on bios. <laughs> but, but listen, she goes on to say, I would like to have congregations leave God out of the picture, work together as communities to define their own God according to their own worked out definitions of what is holy and sacred. I would love to know what she thinks of the Taliban. 
So they have a worked out definition of their God. Which would have them kill her. There is no hope in hope. (laughs) Hope is dead. Hope cannot be resurrected. We have a better hope through Jesus. Let us celebrate and sing that. I want to bless you in Jesus name with that song. That is ringing all over the world today. May you become part of that beautiful song. song. Because Christ your high priest. Is beginning to communicate to you a whole new different way of life. That you never knew before. Go in Jesus name.